Hello and welcome to episode three of San Ontology. I am Progression, or Michael, um, and with me is Claudia. Hello. And this week, we've got um, a track that's near and dear to our hearts because it's from uh, genuinely both of our favourites group. I'm so... I'm extremely thrilled that we finally got around to this one. Yeah, um... Well, I'm sure they're going to come back in other forms, but this is the time where we finally get into Shiny and their 2010 track, Lucifer. So, um, starting off, who the hell is Shiny? Yes, uh, so Shiny are regarded as kind of the second and a half, second and a half generation of uh, K-pop groups, right? They're nestled in between Super Junior and, like, if the first wave is, like, the very first kind of sets of, of, of what you can recognizably, identifiably call K-pop, like with a distinct sensibility about it, with a distinct kind of attempt at this kind of genre mixing and trying to play to a broad audience. That's the first wave. The second wave is when you start to have some of these uh, features sort of settling and sort of a lot of the a lot of the features that we would point to and say, oh, this is characteristic of K-pop, like second wave is where they start to emerge. Third wave is stuff like EXO when you start to like hit these like incredibly enormous, huge popular groups that are by now that have a playbook and are working from it. Shiny are interesting because they sit between that second wave and that third wave. Um, they debuted, so that is to say, they stopped being trainees and kind of formally were presented as a band. And started performing in 2008. Yes, and that's Replay. Um, um, Re- yeah. Replay's a, a, like, still a fondly beloved single. Um, it's they not, still perform it. Yeah, it's not big and overbearing, and it's not particularly splashy. It's a quite sweet and um, heart-sore R&B track. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it, it's an incredible vocal track, like it's the perfect way to show off the vocal capabilities of at least most of the members of a new boy group. Yeah. With a dance break in the middle for their youngest member who at that time wasn't allowed to have lines. (laughs) So little did we all know. Little did we all know. So we should actually like talk about who they are then. Um, So this is the first group where we like intimately know all the members who can tell you about them. Mm -hmm. So Lida is um, Lee Jin Ki or Onyu. Um, who I think, I don't think I'd be controversial in saying has one of the thickest, warmest, and most incredible vocal tones in all of K-pop. He's instantly identifiable. He's one of the first voice. So part of the reason why I liked Shiny so much when I was starting to listen to them is that they were one of the first groups that, because of the kind of character of, of, of their voices, and, you know, because of the fact that there are only five of them, um, they were basically the first group why I could easily and reliably pick out everybody's voices yeah and then second is Jonghyun um Jonghyun is the other lead vocalist um 
quite incredibly acrobatic, accurate, and also with a fairly unique tone that I don't think is particularly similar to, to many. Like, we've pulled up other K-pop idols that have similar tones, and you find one or two per generation who have this, like, mm-hmm. reedy, um, reedy quality and, like, uh, the roundness to their voice that um, Jung Hyun had. Right. And and he had he has a, a incredible musical sense like yeah one of the most performative and music like particularly in an r&b and jazz style like he quite mm. clearly nailed like how to do that kind of expressive performance yeah uh we have Timin. so Timin is <laughs> we've the, talked about before yeah Timin being the youngest member um he debuted at age 15 Fif- age 15 korean age i believe so that's 14 for everyone else oh yeah god um yeah it was 14. Doing, doing the actual dates, Lucifer comes out a day after his 17th birthday. Yeah. Um, for context. Um, Timmin starts off being the sort of like tiny, cute, bowl cut, like... Um, like Baby. An angelic cherub of the group. Um, he was clearly an exceptional dancer when he was very young, uh, but the story goes that he realized to, to like keep going and be, keep being successful, he needed to be able to improve his vocal abilities, begged the company to give him serious vocal training, and eventually he turned himself into a top-tier vocalist. Yeah. Clearly doesn't have the same like natural like oomph. shape and uh, oomph, and particularly power to his voice. But the way he's managed to turn himself into like a high-flying vocalist and also a more expressive vocalist because he's found music and he's been given music that suits his unique capability of being an extraordinary dancer and performer and a very good, very elastic, but slightly reserved and weaker singer. Like, it's, it's interesting because he's sort of, he sort of parlayed that uh, sort of... He's, he knows he's not as strong... Uh, both in terms of singing ability, but like he doesn't have that kind of power behind it. But he tends to employ it, I feel, in a much more gentle manner. Yeah, like an, uh, the the quality that he brings to a lot of his singing is a lot more. Which is also interesting in the context of SM because they very clearly train their main vocalist to have a kind of very powerful R and B pop. Voice. Yeah, so like you get generally at least two per group. Like uh, Shiny has. Uh, on you and Jonghyun, uh, EXO has Chen, Baekhyun, Dio, who are like powerhouse vocalists in the very classic sense. And you, it even works mm-hmm. in their girl groups where like you have um, Taeyeon and Tiffany in Girls' Generation being the like, right. they, you need to have people who can belt and launch themselves at the highest notes. You have Sugi and Wendy in Red Velvet who do exactly the same thing. Even when they're not mm-hmm. the ones who like take on all the heavy lifting, they get tasked with the complex, the the out there, the 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 brash technically the, difficult the technically difficult and the stuff that like is memorable and that sticks because it's so performatively ex- like extraordinary we talked when we mm-hmm. talked about TVXQ about the moments where like the belting becomes the centerpiece and the stuff that sticks in mind is giving character to what's otherwise a fairly repetitious track like you need the powerhouse vocalist to, to do that and the thing right. about Taemin is he's managed to become memorable while not being a powerhouse and that's something pretty special key Key. Um, Kim Kibum. Indeed. Um, Key, what, what is he? He's a combo, um, like, all-rounder in that he is both a, like a rapper and a vocalist. Um, mm-hmm. Another very good dancer. And I think there was, like, once upon a time, there was sort of murmuring as, like, why didn't Key get the lead dancer role and why did that go to, to Timmin? I don't think anyone's saying that now, but, like, he's clearly an exceptionally good dancer as well. Yeah. Um, 
noted fashionista, um, kind of a style icon. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. He spent much less time doing solo work. Um, Jong Hyun and Taemin in particular had very substantive and successful solo careers. Ki, mm-hmm. um, only in the last like last year or a half or so his like embarked on his just solo before his just before he went up for military service exactly yeah um and, and then, but but like in that period was incredibly prolific yeah it produced one very stuffed album that i love to bits myself yeah well um, he, he produced one album one repackage of the album so uh, essentially a re-release with new material and a japanese album yes um, in the span of a few months. Yeah, it was something like nine months where all this came out. Plus, he'd been doing um, stage performances at this, all through this time. Right, right, um, right. Minho. Um, Minho is the designated rapper or the lead rapper of the group. Um, mm-hmm. The tall one, the handsome one, um, mm-hmm. and the one that we affectionately call the potato because he clearly isn't... Mango. <laughs> Uh, Minho, Minho's one of Minho's fandom nicknames is Mango. Do you want to unpack that one at all? No, that one's literally just Minho, Mingo, Mingo, Mango, Mango. Yeah, it, it works. That's it. That's the entire. <laughs> He's a Mango. He kind of is, but it's in the sense that, like, alongside uh, a group of a uh, group of performers who become like vocally exceptional. It's quite clear he's got the weakest and least suited voice to the the sort of singing that they do. Yeah. However, he, like I just have endless admiration. He, he's not for bad. Him. Like the the no. few we'll say the few times where he does get to where he gets to perform where he gets to sing in their tracks. You know, he's not bad. The problem is he's up against some of the very best in the industry. Yeah, and this is the thing. Shinya like have that reputation now for being. Both in terms of dancing, technical ability, and singing ability, particularly live. And musicality. Yeah. All of these sorts of yeah. things that like mark out a group as not just like very competent, but that they are able to like take interesting material and to turn it into something performatively extraordinary, which is like d- incredible d- live dancing and incredible live singing while they're doing live dancing and incredible like intentionality and like power behind the performance when they're doing the live singing and dancing. Like, I, I think the, the, the kind of greatest praise I can give any artist or group in the context of pop, right? An industry that is, to some extent, built around smoothing, flat, like, leveling out the bad, but consequently also smoothing over any peaks, is that any artist that can sort of overcome that flattening effect and sort of prove that and sort of like transcend that barrier and prove that like exceptional talent and skill and dedication will still rise to the top regardless of the the system in which it it finds itself is kind of extraordinary and they're so rare um and i think shiny has that and that's why i love them so yeah we you can tell we love them to bits um the last Mm. but a very important note is that sadly in december 2017 uh, Jong Yoon took his own life, and Shiny released one th- three-part album afterwards. After a pretty substantive time away from the music industry, uh, which is also notable because that was the year that was to be their tenth anniversary of debuting. Yeah. Um, so there were a lot of emotions. Yeah, exactly, oh, and like um, you can, see, they talk fairly candidly about how explicitly Jong Yoon's loss like affected them as people, but also as a group. And how they were like became convinced that they need to carry on performing together. 
um, subsequently. And it comes through in the music too. Oh, 100%. Like yeah. a lot of the music like very explicitly deals with it. A, very, a lot of the music videos like very explicitly like reference his absence, but also their relationship to what, where he would have been within the group. It's like a pretty substantive like moment of like, uh, I'm not going to say just well, merely. We will talk about it in the future. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, yeah. A, it's a moment on, unto itself because it like, it's one of the few moments where K-pop has to deal with a real self-awareness of like how it's, dealing with the people performing it in a meaningful way. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's a separate episode to what we're dealing with now. One last thing. Uh, Shiny are currently on hiatus because of the uh, four current members. Three of them are currently uh, serving mandatory uh, military service. Uh, Taemin is the only one who is not yet joined, uh, as we said, because he's very young. Yeah, significantly younger than the others, but also busy having both a momentously uh, successful solo career and being the f- one of the front faces of Super M, uh, SM Entertainment's super group. Yeah. <laughs> the the thing is, because of the, way, the length of uh, military service, which is two years now, although now down to one and a half, by the time the other three members come out of uh, the army, it will be Temin's turn to enlist. So yeah, we'll, we, we await and see So we'll what be happens. sad about this for the next three years. <laughs> yeah, we, we wait yeah. and see exactly what Shiny decide to do with their own releases. But like, I think we can expect bits and pieces from them for the next little while rather than full on main series comebacks and releases. So... But yeah, that sort of like positions where they were, like Shiny at its peak of popular, well, one of its peaks of popularity. On its way, right, on yeah, its way. Yeah, like Shiny absolute- has a number of years at the very, very height of the industry. In, like you said, at that bridge between the second and third generations where like we hit what is called affectionately the golden age, which is an era of like outsized experimentation, outsized speed of like, recombination of cultural references and mashing together of disparate things do you just want to talk before i like launch into the the like what's the music like thing um like what sort of a phenomenon were they okay so the backstory to this episode is that i initially wanted us to talk about ring ding dong Ring Ding Dong was... So Ring Ding Dong and Lucifer, I feel, are very much kind of... They come as a pair. They come as a unit. Um, And I I don't just mean that because they're similar musically. Uh, They were released... Was I think was Lucifer part of the repackage of the uh, of I the think, one we're reading on? I think Lucifer is its own release, but it's this the the immediately subsequent um, uh, like main single. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But I can pull up the exact dates and the exact. The, yeah. They're about half a year out from each other. Yeah. So. Um, Ringling Dongs was on 2009 Year of Us. It didn't get a re-release. Um, and then oh, okay. immediately that mini albums followed up by their f- second full length, which is Lucifer. Mm-hmm. So so they're, they, they come out close together. They sound, in terms of their sound design, they're quite similar. Aesthetically, by which I mean in the MVs and sort of in that kind of general era, their, their look, their aesthetic was 
very much compatible. Uh, live stages nowadays, they perform together. Ring Ding Dong was an enormous cultural phenomenon for me growing up. Um, like, that's what was played all the time. The chorus is that. And, and it's, it is nonsense. It's ring ding dong, ring ding dong, ring, ring diggy ding, diggy ding ding, 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 ding. dong. Um. <laughs> yeah, the apocryphal story being that um, this is one of the tracks or the initial track that had to be banned from being played in South Korean schools because it was apparently so catchy that it was disrupting students' ability to write exams. <laughs> Which is hilarious. But, it is. but also, it, it, it's it is hilarious, that. but also, I totally see it. Um, like, Everyone around me was learning the, the the iconic dance move in the chorus, which is the sort of this kind of like squatting, this kind of how do you describe it? Um, this sort of like <laughs> knee bend, like knee bend and drop to the sides. Yeah, 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 it's this sort of like half squat drop. Yeah, um, it's it's instantly memorable. It's really kind of. It doesn't, it's not technically difficult. It is hard to pull it off with style, which is basically what separates Shiny from us plebeians. <laughs> um, uh, and, and it is actually true for, for a lot of their dances. They're not necessarily technically difficult. It's just when you do them, you will learn why you're not Shiny. It's, well, um, I, I think we can qualify that with some of their dances are in that category of hard, uh, easy oh, to yeah. perform, hard to perform well, and some of them are just really fucking hard. <laughs> Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, uh, but, but also, if you look up the music video, and I'll put this in the show notes, and also heartily encourage anyone listening to this, please watch the Ring Ding Dong music video. It is one of the most glorious pieces of video ever committed to digital tape. screens. <laughs> God, it's so good. So, I mean, we talked about the Boys in the Box dance uh, music, uh, music video aesthetic. Uh, the, the, the box has been done up to look like a roof, and it has actually... I think, as you said, like surprising how much of a difference this makes to how it feels. Yeah, it feels ex- right. expansive and impressive and expensive in a way that the boxes just don't normally. Yeah, it's still a box, though. And and importantly, this is 2009. And so every member has secret wings. <laughs> um, and they all sort of like smolder into the mirror where their secret ring wings are revealed unless unless you're a little baby Timon who is relegated to threateningly drinking a glass of milk <laughs> it's, it might be the best most random thing that I've ever seen in K-pop 48 seconds in it's beautiful threatening milk <laughs> oh, poor boy um, and, oh. and like the, the auto tune is omnipresent and and again like part of what makes this uh, uh, what I affectionately call a meme song right you have this dance that's super catchy super recognizable not too difficult to actually do you have this chorus that is nonsense words but really fun to sing and just irrepressibly catchy um, and the look of the whole thing is I mean, now it's so incredibly dated. And even then, it already felt dated at the time that it came out. Like, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I entirely yeah. get it. Just like, it's not like, it's not like you couldn't have watched what a Lady Gaga video looks like and like known yeah. what big production, high-end, sleek pop stuff looks like. Um, 
but yeah, very clearly this is like, <laughs> this is only a year and a half removed from, well, this is only what, how long ago is Into the New World? This is two years after Into the New World where they're putting like Windows Movie Maker stock fonts in the intro um, a year or a year after replay where they've got like green flashing screens in the edit and um and it's in th- and it's in four three yeah, yeah all these sorts of things that just like you know it's this is like really at the high end of what's cu- at the cutting edge of k-pop but it's clearly like lagging in production value and design behind us pop so psych we're not gonna talk about ring ding dong anymore yeah um it's a glorious track but it's clearly not one we're in love with in the same way we're in love with the rest of shiny's discography so yeah so like we get to lucifer itself um Mm -hmm. lucifer is probably shiny's single biggest track probably no i think sherlock was bigger oh interesting um I'm. I'm gonna do that the, was a that was a secret third contender for the slot. But. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um. It's something in that era. So like going by music video views, I think. Going by music video views, it's definitely Lucifer. But in terms of like cultural relevance, I think everybody and Dream Girl and Lucifer and Sherlock all have a shout to that claim. Mm-hmm. But um, this is the sort of like start of Shiny's era of like proper dominance i'd say i think that's pretty undisputable oh, yeah oh I, I lied sorry i looked up the sales figures lucifer had about 2.4 million korean sales yeah so we're on the order of the again when in context g had 10 total million sales worldwide then like this clearly isn't on that level but it's approaching a level of like cultural hegemony that is not insignificant <laughs> mm-hmm mm-hmm um it's the start of them like becoming a top tier like globally and instantly recognizable group and brand along with it yeah um and sort of the version of themselves they produce is a very like digitalist futuristic version um like we already said that ring ding dong is a sort of partnered song and aesthetic and look to this one with the whole fantastic elastic thing um and hyper vocoder nonsense and this is like it's not quite to the same degree that like fully digital acid house weirdness but it's almost entirely electronic um and very very digital sounding Like, what are the sort of hallmark terms you used to describe this? We called it, like, techie, right? Like, yeah. techie, hard-hitting, sharp. Um, not necessarily aggressive. Yeah. But just hard. Yeah. Precise or something. Mm. And, like, we get the quite wonderful moment where... So, like, this style of dancing isn't new to K-pop. I think Sorry Sorry, which is Super Junior's biggest track, which comes out a year before this, I think, mm-hmm. has a lot of the similar sorts of... The specific style of dancing with the intricate hand movements and the, the like, body locking in certain positions and isolations. Like, the style of dancing is um, 
either tutting for the hand movement or um, popping. And like, these aren't new to K-pop, but I think it's quite important that we're out of the stage where we're aping J-pop and the sort of like minimally choreographed um, single movement. And like, I think the dance has a really important aesthetic purpose, which is to like stress technical proficiency and accuracy. And we get the incredible bits in the first opening dance sequences where there are whoosh sound effects and wispy visual design things like flying around their arms as they like mm-hmm. do their like first couple of moves. It's the sort of thing where like these are the sound effects you'd put in a in like a Hong Kong style um, martial arts film to emphasize the, the the whoosh of a leg as it smashes into a guy's uh, temple. Yeah, yeah. Except instead of the sound editing being used to emphasize like violence, it's being used to emphasize the sort of like speed and accuracy and like potency of the movement. And the, like it's a more complex thing than like very clearly. G was talking about crushes. Right. Um, very clearly, Morothic um, was talking about seduction and romance. This isn't like very clearly talking about anything particular. And it sort of inherits the, the, the ring ding dong thing of kind of being about nothing much. But um, it's, it's all about the sort of combination of visual style and sound design used to communicate the sort of sensation of the thing. Right. Rather than like uh, a sort of like narrative device. Like, if you look up the English translation of the lyrics, which you can, but is honestly deeply unnecessary, it's about how the singer feels entrapped by presumably a female lover. Hence, like, her whisper is the Lucifer. Like, but it doesn't mean anything. And it doesn't necessarily have a relationship to the aesthetic of it, to the sound design of it. It's just kind of, yeah. Whereas what is very clearly tied together is the style, the sound design, the composition, the dance, and mm-hmm. the the sort of aesthetic trappings that go around the look of the performers. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to contextualize this within what I talked about very briefly earlier is like the golden era of K-pop being the era of like rapid experimentation, right. rapidly accommodating and recombining our disparate musical styles and like pushing the boundaries of like visual design but also like hair and wardrobe and makeup (laughs) yeah uh we 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 do also affectionately refer to this as the hot mess era yeah well this this and then maybe the two or three years after yeah like the the um golden age like starts off with less being less of a hot mess because it's inheriting the sort of like quite linear relationship between composition and performance whereas like slowly over time compositional techniques like blow up as so many new styles get incorporated and complexity ramps up so drastically and people try and differentiate themselves in radically more complex and interesting and weird ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and slowly that unfolds into this like bloss- like blossoming not only of like niche and weird aesthetics, but also like the ability for niche and weird aesthetics to explode in popularity, which is like, this is where sort of where it starts. We're at the early stages of it where um, this isn't particularly weird, but we're getting elements of like recombined forms of other bits of dance music or bits of pop music coming to like k-pop's use in a way that well we'll talk about later with right. future hot messes which are even hotter and even more messy <laughs> oh god yeah 
But like the other notable thing is that these hot messes are commercially successful, enormously successful. Enormously, enormously right, successful. Right. If like if you kind of take a more global perspective on it, like this is the moment where the Hallyu wave, where like K-pop expands and t- basically takes over all of Asia. Like I remember this moment as I grew up initially listening to hearing Kanto pop. Then for a while it was J-pop. And then suddenly everything was in Korean. Right? Like that's that's the Hallyu wave. Like the, and this is when it starts really hitting. It's there's um, a there's the quite wonderful conceit that all the um <laughs> that or at least a large number of the K-pop awards that get awarded each season present themselves as the Asian Music Awards because there's just the pervasive understanding that like what Asian music means now means K-pop. Yeah. Um, and that starts with this era, particularly, um, where K-pop isn't just a thing that lives alongside other forms of music, but that like K-pop and K-pop aesthetics and K-pop trends and K-pop like the like lexicon and like visual and musical language of K-pop becomes the standard thing and becomes utterly ubiquitous. All right. Um, so can I now like try and piece together what the sound design is? We should do this. We should do this thing. So I'm going to start off by like taking you like way back. Pretty uncontroversially, the first like borrowed bit of musical like genre that was taken into K-pop and turned into a phenomenon was hip hop. And the the track that sort of kicks off K-pop as a wave within Korea is called I Know or Nan Areo by um, Seo Taiji. And the boys. Uh, and and the boys. But Seo Taiji. Or, or <laughs> Seo, Taiji, Seo Taiji and boys. Or like it gets mistranslated in a variety of exciting ways. Yes. But yeah, the, um, that's very clearly a hip hop track. It also, like, sets up the penchant that K-pop has for, like, dipping into different genres entirely for for moments because it's got, um, the uh, pre-chorus breakdown is, um, metal. Random bit of hard rock. And the chorus itself has bits of, like, bubblegum R&B in it. The, the, the driving, the core thing that sort of organizes the track is all um, hip-hop and bits of, like, dance music that are also inflected with hip-hop, like breaks music. And then at some point in time, like, Europop in particular, but Eurodance sort of starts setting the, like, backbone of what pop music globally and particularly in Europe can be. So I'm going to send you... 
What I've just sent is two unlimited, no limit. Dutch duo, male producer slash rapper and female singer. And I think it, the reason I'm including this because they are, I think, releasing this in 1992 or so. They are Dutch, yes. They're incredibly Dutch. I hit the rap break. This is a lot. Yeah, I'm just going to let you soak this up for a minute. It is so interesting to listen to this. Like, that's the thing, right? Like, I can hear... I can hear the bones of, like, K-pop. I'm also finding it very hard to say anything because A, it's still going on in the background as I speak, and B, it's it's very, 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 very repetitive. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, like... But the reason I'm bringing this up is, like, there is a moment in the 90s where, like, dance music forms um, become the way you make pop music. And, like, mm-hmm. the charts just explode with Eurodance. And this is the sort of, like, weird, unholy combination of bits of 80s electropop, but also, um, like, bits of house music and bits of hard dance that had, like, sprung up around Europe, particularly Germany and Netherlands and Belgium. Mm-hmm. And, like, this is what takes over the charts. Um, doesn't quite, like become ubiquitous in the UK in the same way, but like it's very, very influential. And it becomes a default in a sense that like we flick back and forth. We have moments where indie comes back in in force. We have moments where girl groups come back in force. Right. But like this undercurrent of like dance music being a way that you make pop music in Europe doesn't really go away. And then has its second heyday again in the late 2000s and early 2010s where um, we get both the like advent of the collaborations of superstar DJs and pop musicians to like make dance tracks that hit the top of the charts, as well as pop stars whose thing is making dance music. So like we talked in um in G about uh the Black Eyed Peas. Um and the Black Eyed Peas like basically did exactly this. They got the superstar DJ, who was David Guetta, mm-hmm. and they um told him to make one of those David Guetta tracks. And they did pop music on top of it. And it turned into the biggest selling track of the decade. Um, there wasn't much complicated about it, but it literally stuck around for two years in the like, top of all the radio charts. Like, I had a look at what was in the top of the UK charts in 20, 2009 and 2010. Right. Which is, which is just, just, just as a reminder, that was the same time as, that is the same time as Lucifer. Yeah, exactly. Just other side of the world. Um, and the tracks that dominate the top of the charts are the Black Eyed Peas and Lady Gaga in various orders for several successive years. And that sort of like sets the sound template for exactly what we're dealing with, which is dance music has found its way back to the top of the charts by like incorporating just enough amount of like pop sensibility to like take what is actually like really dancey sound design and making it palatable for like Western ears. And unfortunately, the thing I need to do to you now is play to you some LMFAO. It's the thing I'm going to do to you. I thought I had escaped. 
See, that was the that was the soundtrack of my high school, middle school, I guess. <laughs> and with regret. Yeah. So what I'm sending you now is Let the Bass Kick in Miami Bitch by Chucky and LMFAO. Chucky mm-hmm. is what's... He's a, a Dutch uh, producer and he makes a style that is predominantly known as Dutch House or Dirty Dutch. Dirty Dutch is just like... It takes Euro, it takes the sort of Eurodance style that in one incarnation becomes like mainstream pop. But in this incarnation, they just basically add searing, high-pitched, squeaky leads. Right. Um, and sometimes like more syncopated percussion. And you get a sound that is both dominant in EDM spaces, what became EDM spaces, and also something that LMFAO turned into one of the biggest sounds in the world. For the full experience, listeners at home, I recommend that you play all of these in sequence and then try to have coherent thoughts about music while you're listening to these things for the first time and also watching them. That's very important. You need to be watching all these videos. Yeah, like... I think it's probably worth mentioning that, like, when I'm trying to, like, claim that the aesthetic trappings of, like, Euro Europe dance and Dutch house have, like, very similar sound design patterns to what Shani are producing, mm-hmm. um, the aesthetic trappings are utterly different because the Black Eyed Peas stuff is all about, like, the 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 solo cup and the, the raging party and mm-hmm. the LMFAO track is all about it's that, but turned up to 11 in a kind of like nominally subversive, nominally messy. How would you describe the the thing? Like, Well, it turns it up to the point of uh, complete, utter absurdity. It's to absurdity and parody and taboo breaking like craziness with like, ah, oh, there are old yeah. people. There are policemen. The glasses are ridiculous. You can see my bum. All of these things. And the, and the break, the break of it is when it returns to relative normalcy about halfway through well no no about two-thirds through um and then it just kind of launches off again exactly it, it's incredibly yeah. unsubtle but um oh yeah no. it's notable that like these kinds of bits of sound design can be used in radically different ways and like uh we'll get onto exactly the differences and which direction should take in a second but like the thing i want to drill home here is like the heritage for this kind of sound design is like dance music and particularly a kind of European approach to, to making pop out of dance music Mm. that like it's, it's electronic drums and high pitched lead sounds. And Lucifer has the very famous intro to the video. I it's will worm its way into your head and destroy all your four, four remaining brain cells by this point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but like there have been versions of that kind of like lead synth in all kinds of different dance music but I think it's like important to register where else this sort of stuff had been happening and like it's notable that when Lady Gaga makes pop music out of that she takes the leads out and she just sings um, uh, whereas like LMFAO the way that they do it is very much like sticking to the dance music form keep the, keep the lead in and like make a pop track around it yeah yeah for sure the most explicit um, moment that uh, Lucifer nods to actual dance music forms is called the Prida snare. 
Um, do you, does the name Eric Prids as a dance music producer mean anything to you? No. So um, he's probably most famous for tracks called Call On Me. Um, again, this is the sort of thing where because I had like either European or African MTV uh, as my like constant music background growing up, that you had these tracks just like become absolutely ubiquitous on the ra- on radio and TV. Um, and piano is the other one. So a thing that he did, then that he gave his name to, is called the Pride of Snare. Um, and I will find the original example of it, which is from a track called Miami to Atlanta, which is these sections being demarcated by these big, booming, thwacky snare noises, and that like have become such an, a completely ubiquitous part of EDM that it's almost a meme now. Um, I, I want you to know that the first YouTube comment on Miami to Atlanta is, who's here to hear that snare? Yeah, um, it becomes like it becomes both a notable mimetic part of dance music sound, but also like a comedy meme. Um, uh, it's like the eight oh eight, although it's not quite as memey. That's just yeah, the eight oh eight is just like <laughs> right. an integral part of like how trap and hip hop sounds. Whereas this is like it's very much an individual like feature sound. Like you include that when you both want to like mm. give have the the particular function that the snare has of like demarcating sections is the thing it usually does. Um, or like becoming being the crash, being the like the like release of tension from a big builder. But also, it's um, it's to associate yourself with a particular lineage of dance music, which the um, the uh, section demarcation in Lucifer 100% does before the chorus. Um, and that's just like the very explicit nods to like its dance music heritage. Oh god, I am looking at the billboard. The usual thing I'm doing, right, is like I'm looking at the billboard hot 100s of the years we're talking about. I kind of forgot this is when TikTok happens. Oh yeah, like the the, the is is like a social moment. This is really interesting because like mm-hmm. before like financial crisis like turns into uh, an economic depression. There's this weird moment where we're in the like late stages of aught bubble capitalism and party culture is the thing that everyone is trying to emulate. That like the thing that's been building in Europe for, for for 10 years has been dance music is like the hedonistic practice is the way that you do pop music. And like at some point that's going to collapse because like the early aughts are notorious in Western pop music for being the moment where like... um hip-hop like reclaimed the ascendancy and pop music itself got really dour and sad and i think that's very clearly actually attributable to like the world just being a more miserable place to be in a lot of ways as well as all sorts of other things about the sorts of things Mm. that have cultural cachet changing but like we're in this weird moment the sort of like uh rome is falling uh moment where um even as the world is about to like collapse around our heads, like the thing that is exploding is 
images images of hedonistic party and there are various varieties of it but like Mm -hmm. it's interesting to put see where shiny's like fitting in alongside this because well it's the other thing about hedonistic party images it's a it's a immensely accessible form of hedonism oh yeah yeah like when when your when your symbol is a solo cup um which is to say you know literally disposable red shitty college party cups like Mm -hmm. that's a very different form of hedonism than say the kind of luxury well like the kind of luxury that these tracks are proposing yeah right the kind of experiences these kind of like over the top saturating um sensations are really really mundane if you sit down and think about it right it's mm-hmm. getting drunk at a party and dancing with your friends now i mean they they convey it in like really kind of surreal ways there's this kind of like oversaturation of color and this sense that when you engage in this you you you're part of something more than yourself right like that's yeah totally totally kind of the thesis well to an extent the thesis of pop but um it's a very different feeling than say the 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 feeling of kind of luxury and sensation and hedonism that you get out of say hip-hop yeah right it's it's a different it's a what these two there, there are basically two, two different modes of thinking about what luxury is. And I swear this is relevant to Lucifer. Yeah, because in <laughs> Lucifer, what we get is we get the three cars in the back of the, the choreography shots. The, the yeah. boys in a box set is made to look more like a parking garage than anything. We get yeah. lots of like, um, the, the fashion sense is less about accessibility, but more about high fashion and artfulness. Yeah. There's a lot of metallics. There's a lot of shiny, like, PVC coats. Exactly. It's meant to be stuff that is genuinely inaccessible to actual humans. Right. And I still find it kind of amusing that the each of the car makers in the background make more expensive versions of the cars on display. Yeah, that, that's my favorite. When you pointed that out to me, that was hilarious. Like to indulge the 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 thirteen year old me that was a car nut, like mm-hmm. that's in Nissan two seventy two seventy Z, and Nissan were already making a GTR supercar by this point. That's a Porsche Cayman. There are nine elevens. That's a BMW Z four. I don't think BMW actually made a supercar at this point in time, but like they have subsequently, and there are more like luxurious versions of BMWs that you could be putting at the back of the set if you wanted to. Um, right. It straddles the boundary really interestingly that like. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's I, I can't even tell whether it's through constraints of production that it's very hard to rent a supercar for a, for two days to film a music video. And this is what they could actually find. Or alternatively, like there's something ingenious about like positing like luxury beyond your wildest dreams is actually like you check the price listings and that's something you could probably actually get on credit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It-, it, it's, it puts it in a different space though. And one like, similar in some ways to the very hip-hop thing of like what i have is luxury that you could not even imagine because it's utterly inaccessible to you right i I, like my this luxury and the sound in me like i the singer am am so far beyond your what you could hope to attain that you could only aspire to be me and that's sort of the relationship exactly but but i mean we were saying earlier right this this track is it's hard it's hard edge it's precise it's tacky but it's not well it, there's some distancing right 
as, mm-hmm. as a result of all of those things. But it's not, it's, it's not actively pushing you away, right? Like it's not forcing you into this position where you are kind of, you couldn't get here. It's not aggressive in that same sense. Yeah, and now I think this is where I start getting to talk about the phenomenology of like modern dance music which I think is a very hard thing to be able to do, but I think Lucifer's got a weird, like fantastically interesting window onto it. So (laughs) it's hard to like talk about a phenomenology of sound. This is like a thing that very few people have managed. And like when people have tried to bring critical and philosophical theory to sound and sound design, it's always been like sound is such an elusive and hard thing to talk about. And particularly in pop music, it's been talked about so much less than visual art forms that like, Often what I'm talking here is going to be completely off on a limb, but I think there is a sort of like just trying to talk about the emotional resonance of certain bits of sound design is like a a quite reasonable thing to do when quite clearly the like whole business of music and pop production is about engineering emotional sensation from sound design in large extent like obviously you have cultural markers you have vocal performances you have human human aspects which drive it as well as the um sound aspects but um Mm -hmm. like a crucial part is marrying the two understanding what the sound is trying to do and being able to to like lean into that with the the other human and cultural aspects lucifer is a track where almost none of the sounds have a release um release is a technical term for I'm going to ask you to imagine pressing a key on a piano and I'll include examples of, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, include examples in sound. So there are four parameters that control the volume of that sound over time. Traditionally, um, the, 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 the volume of a sound being called the envelope. Um, first parameter is attack. Attack is how long it takes to get from minimum to maximum, um, at the start of the sound. Consider it acceleration, but for sound. Yes. Um, you then get decay, which is um, how long it takes to get to the level it settles at once it's hit a maximum. The third is sustain, which is uh, what level it settles at. Um, so you could have sounds that have a zero sustain and fall away to nothing. You could have sustains with... Uh, like an intermediate value so that you hear a pluck at the start of the sound and it decays to a decays to like a, a lower volume mm-hmm. or you could have sounds with a maximal sustain so as soon as you hit maximum at the once you've hit gone through the attack the sound is sustained and held and the final one is release release is how long it takes from lifting your finger off the note it takes for the sound to die away to nothingness What you'll hear in Lucifer is almost no reverb and almost no uh, release to the notes, which means that the sound is incredibly dry, precise, and filled with gaps. It's incredibly, like, um, punchy in that sense. Um, you get occasional things where you get crash cymbals and, and booming snares that cut across for moments. But even the vocal performances designed, and well, it, the vocal performances, to a certain extent, they are lyrical vocal performances, but all the sound design in the sense, the drum patterning is all about this precision where you hit a note 
And as soon as you stop hitting the note, it comes away entirely and you don't get tails. Right. I want to say that um, the I'm going to like define this in terms of what it isn't, which is traditionally when you want to tr- convey epicness and opulence and ex- uh, excitement in sound design, particularly in this sort of dance music, you include the tails because that's what gives you the feeling of expansion and epicness. Right. Right. Like that's how you, that's kind of, it's the sensation you get of like, oh, this is, oh, this, this is, this must be music from, I don't know, like some kind of dramatic cathedral setting, right? It's the reverberation. It's the, because like when you hear sound naturally, when a sound is quote unquote grand, as in like, if you have a sound that is filling up a space, what you hear is reverberation and echo and sustain, right? You're hearing it for a long time and you're hearing it bouncing off the walls that the sound has to travel some distance and come back to you. It is like the very opposite of that kind of yeah. sharpness that you hear in Lucifer, where like you hit the note, you hit it, and then you you drop it and you move on to the next one. Yeah. So like Lucifer, very specifically, it feels disconnected from a, a sound you're meant to be hearing it into. It feels very like out of space in a and unnatural. Unnatural. And I, I and I mean that you know like in a it feels artificial. Yeah. Like you know it's not a it's not a a, a natural sound you would hear. But yeah, um, it's goes through literally all the elements from the the, the 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 sort of squeaky lead noise to the um to the bridges um what you'd call in a like the production technique is called trance gating which is where you um tie the impact of the um synth to a hi-hat pattern usually or a other sort of trigger so that you get it cutting in the same way you would a hi-hat pattern And the, the bridge is like the slight exception that it has a baseline that sustains slightly. And then pretty much every other element is just straight back to um, this minimal sustain, incredibly accurate, incredibly dry sound. Mm-hmm. And the, the point of comparison is like, what do Shiny do later in their career um, when they're trying to go through a different aesthetic trapping? And this is where we bring up the fact that Shiny have been performing for a decade and the way they've performed it has drastically changed over time. Mm-hmm. So um, you pull up the uh, the Shiny World 5 concert. Which is, the, uh, this is like a, a world tour that yeah. they did. So they do both Korean and Japanese language world tours, well, international tours. Um, yeah. Shiny World 5 is their, their latest, was performed in late 2016 or 2017, if I remember correctly. So, so this is, we're talking seven, six or seven years after the release of Lucifer, to yeah. be clear. Um, and in, like international, as in Korea, Japan, some dates in the US and Canada, and all around South and Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and the version they performed there um, is very recognizably Lucifer. Um, it's just that they've changed their role. They're not anymore trying to like, I, I want to say this is like different means and different degrees and different kinds of alienation or separation between performer and audience. Right. Where um, I think Lucifer's original sound design is like accurate and hyper precise and dry in such a way that it feels plastic and weird and 
unnatural and uncanny mm-hmm. in ways that are meant to be like, oh, those are people who are different from me in a way that's impressive and shiny and in, in, like exciting in a novel way. Shiny, get it? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yes, um, sorry. When they, perf- <laughs> <laughs> when they perform it live seven, eight years later, they uh, have EDM bass lines roaring through the middle of the track. And I think the crucial moment is where you get to the pre-chorus. Uh, it's in the video that we're watching. It's three minutes 43 or so. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is where we get the, like, very traditional, expansive, explosively big, wide, you call them super source synths, um, many stacked oscillators detuned from each other with lots of stereos, stereo information, like information that's coming from lots of different directions that feels expansive and it fizzes, it it, um, like has- It fills the space. It fizzes and fills the space, specifically because what Shiny have turned themselves into is a group that fill arenas. And the function of we're the ones on stage, but we're bringing you along for a ride as the people on stage in our global arena tour is a very similar function to the sort of thing that EDM DJs do. It's a very similar thing to what your Dead Mouse or your Skrillex is doing at the front of your EDC or whatever it might be, where your job is to like, provide the sound environment that feels to some degree like club music, to some degree like something that you could be parting to internally, but just as much like scales it up. And also just like it's, there's one thing about like when you're clubbing, you're generally facing your friends or the speakers Mm -hmm. maybe when you're at a concert or indeed an EDM gig, um, you're facing the DJ and like the attention is focused around the DJ. Um, And sometimes like, Obviously, there is vast amounts of trance music and stuff like that that um, doesn't have the same cult of DJ personality or performer personality as um, like big EDM stuff does. But this is pop music and everything's about selling stuff on the basis of personal attachment and personal admiration and love. Right. And in this sense, like the new version of Lucifer is a different kind of separation between artist and audience. It's instead of being the like, we're, we're distinct in terms of, how unearthly and strange and novel and futuristic we are. It's here we are performing for you in a way that is inviting and still shows us off as incredible performers and distinct performers. But like, I think the function of this sort of big room EDM sound is to like be the platform for having a party where you maintain a cult of personality at the same time. And like, I don't know if that's particularly clear distinction if you're not very familiar with like how EDM as a function and particularly in the US has has turned itself into a phenomenon. But like, I think you might get a sense of it just like watching the difference between uh, a live stage of the original um, Lucifer when it was being performed. Right. And Lucifer as it is as as a track in a world tour. I mean, I'll put it in the show notes. And again, it's go through them like this is one of those tracks where it's really fascinating to watch how um because it was performed in so many different ways and uh over the course of shiny's careers this is one of those tracks where it's genuinely interesting to see how the song itself has changed and adapted to the 
needs of the, the, the context in which it's being performed, but also to Shiny as a group and how they relate with their fans and how that all comes back together to the music. Yeah. I, I do want And also, for a, for a hot second there, I genuinely thought you were going to talk about the Rock remix. <laughs> I mean, the Rock remix does absolutely work for this, and it's a fucking incredible video. Like, please go watch that just for the, the insanity and the ludicrousness of it. However... Um, Featuring surprise cameos. It's important surprise cameos, the, the weirdest mm. and best kind. However, I am just going to say that straight up, it's much easier to explain the sort of felt sense of it, like the, the felt difference between the original Lucifer and something that's so drastically different, not just in context, but more particularly in like sound design for the purpose that it's it's been been designed for. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I do want to add for about this, um, the world tour version is that the dancing changes too. Um, if you just go to like, there is uh, from about three minutes in our video, you get the dance break at, uh, 1318. Yeah. This is the iconic opening dance. But where the original is um super precise, super upright, and super technically clean, they're just giving it fucking everything in the live version. Um, mm. including like losing some of the cleanness to um like be physically powerful and impressive. And it's just something that I never like clocked, but like you can't perform the expansive, like a perf- like I'm going to say performative, but the like the sort of outgoing inviting version of Lucifer with just like minimally precise and impressive choreography, you have to fucking give it everything. And this is exactly yeah. what it does. You just get the version of Tame in fucking like head down, f- hair flying, like definitely less clean, but like Junkion is going for it every single time he opens his mouth. Yeah. Um, and again, because it's all live performances and shiny, just live perform the vocal performance is just as committed. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm also trying to figure out where in their set list this is happening, and it's right in the middle. Yeah, this is peak time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, again, like, if you consider how demanding a lot of, like, even if they're not necessarily individually demanding, if you're a very good dancer, you're doing them, as we say, like, they're all very high paced, they're very fast, you're doing them one after the other after the other with very minimal well, like very short breaks comparatively speaking and you're being asked to sing live and you're being asked to rap live and you're being asked to hype up an audience while you're doing all of this and and it and it, and it makes sense both from like a practical perspective that like you you aren't going to be able to be as clean as you are uh in the video but also right like as you say like that's not necessarily what you want for this setting yeah exactly um, so yeah, that's my thing about the sound design. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is, I will also say, like one of those songs where I prefer the live versions um, because of that expansiveness and because there is, is, there is more of a sense of like the listeners there uh, and along for the ride. Yeah, exactly. Like you're, you're on the inside uh, with, the, with the more expansive versions. Um, uh, well, and also because like that autotune is really, really dated. And uh, not necessarily in the good way. So yeah, there's an opportunity to talk about like, if there's anything interesting about like the, the, the songwriting bits of this, like sound design is, I think the primary thing you hear when you hear Lucifer, Mm -hmm. mainly also because the, um, the track is very, very light on harmony. Like it is pretty much just 
a, a it's a, a pedal. Um, you have the bass note that it sticks in for pretty much the whole track, aside from the bridge, because the bridge has to include some melodic bits to like show off the vocalists. But yeah, this is, we're in E minor and it stays in E minor. And we just get the booming bass line like around E for the entirety of the verses and a very, very simple short chord sequence of four chords in the, in the, um, in the, in the chorus. Like this is not a complex track. This is not a track where it's worth dwelling on the harmony. No. Except for you pulled up the vocoder bits. <laughs> so so we already talked about Ring Ding Dong being obnoxious for the amount of um, autotune it used. Um, I, I believe my initial, when we were plotting out notes, I my exact phrase was, it should be a crime to autotune vocalists who are actually capable of hitting those yeah. notes to the, in, in the way that Shiny are. Yeah, and you've already pulled up, like, they're such good live vocalists that very frequently in their live performances, they just do the vocal parts that are autotuned live. Um, yeah. Sorry, they're auto-tuned in the recorded version, and they just do them live, and it's perfectly, um, perfectly accurate. Yeah. It, it legit makes me upset listening to the, <laughs> to the to the album version of Ring Ding Dong. Yeah. So the version of this we get is that I was always surprised going back to Lucifer quite how lyrical the singing was. Like the singing technique is much uh, like more. Um, they they allow the line space to breathe. They're not entirely dead on the beat. They're like allowed to have the the like humanity to breathe in a way they just don't in ring ding dong mm-hmm. and that's both about the like i always just remember hearing the opening line of ring ding dong with junkin's voice which is compressed beyond all belief and like tight and like on perfectly on pitch and it's almost unnerving and freaky how like accurate it is baby <laughs> Whereas, like, you get moments in the second bridges um, where, like, they're tra- I think it's key on you, Temin, are, like, trading belts back and forth between each other. And Onyu just has a run. Onyu has, like, an improv run that, like, goes downwards down the scale into the lower bits of his voice. And it's just quieter and more subtle. And, like, mm-hmm. the fact that this vocal performance is allowed to go there is really interesting. <laughs> The thing that we do have though instead though is vocoder parts which is the way that they get like the sort of weird and interesting shiny harmonic color to it um the sort of the sort of harmonic gloss is the way i put it because like it's not like actually going and doing adventurous things over time but it is just like adding sparkly uh, glitter stars over the top to just give it the like right tone essentially pizzazz there you go it's to give it the pizzazz it's with the vocoder parts and like we have Loverholic Robotronic, which is one of the most incredible bits of like ma- mangled English. Every time, every time there's a poll for like, what's your favorite English lyrics in K-pop songs? Somebody all caps Loverholic Robotronic. It's it's right up at the top. Um, God. Uh, we already said Ring and Dong had fantastic elastic, elastic, fantastic. And that was... And Ring Ding Dong, Ring Ding Dong, Ding, Diggy Ding, Diggy Ding, Ding Dong. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we, we have um, the vocoder parts. Um, I think the most obvious place to just uh, hear it is at the end of each chorus, pretty much. Yep. Yeah. 
Electronic Lovaholic And it goes all the way through that chorus, basically. Yeah, through to the end of that. Through to the end of that chorus, then you get the the section transition, which is Lovaholic Robotronic, which has even more Vocoder stuff on it. Yep. So like that chord sequence isn't particularly complex. It's uh, we're in E minor. It's one uh, a relative major, major third, um, minor four, minor five. It's just that we just get some quite interesting, colourful tension notes on top of it, like get sharp eleventh on the on the G. You get the 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 funky flat ninth on the on the fifth. Like either I will play these chords, and you'll be able to hear there's a bit of crunch added to them. But um. Mm-hmm. The, the function isn't so much to like be harmonically complex, but it's to just like, this is the, the kind of gloss that it wants to add to the track is using the like multitude of voices and other very specifically electronic multitude is like its way of like being impressive in this way. Um, and you, the, the loverholic robotronic is initially all in unison. And then, and then as it gets repeated, you get a, like a cluster chord. It's four notes, I think in succession. Um, of four neighboring notes in the scale. Like, this isn't like harmony that we need to dwell on, but like, it's just like, this is the kind of gloss in songwriting where like, when you've got the harmonic, uh, the, sorry, the, the sound design palette of hyper electronic and um, either autotune or vocoding and- Or both. Mm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And you've got the remit to be otherworldly and like um, impressive and angular. There are some really interesting places you can go. And I think it's notable that Shiny is one of those groups that even when they're being exceptionally um, both poppy and also um, straightforward in most of their songwriting, they find the capacity to include crunch, harmonic crunch in particular, which has sort of become a thing they're known for. Um, they are known as not only as the the group with like the R and B sensibility to pop music, but the like right. very specifically complex harmonic attitude. Or like you you hear them described as a as an experimental R and B group, and it's not necessarily like the I mean like yes they are experimental, but also I think yeah as you say it's the propensity to add some extra add the spice crunch and flavor yeah yeah and um, yeah there are a variety of like aesthetic appropriate ways to add spice and in this case it's like cluster chords and added extensions with vocoder harmonies mm-hmm. um and yeah we've we've been talking all the way through about this dance i just i, th- I think it's one of the most impressive dances in k-pop More, maybe not necessarily the best anymore because like the the look of k-pop dancers become so different like or even within like shiny's own mm, exactly. library of performances right there are a lot of so like everybody is probably a dance that's as technically complex as this, but also includes much more formation work, includes much more contact, includes much more like set piece, like narrative style set pieces. Whereas Lucifer mm-hmm. is just about technique. Um, it's very like slick and very well performed, very sleek, maybe more than slick. Like it's in- incredibly like easy on the eye and easy to just follow as it goes through it, through the motions. Whereas like, other groups are either like the trend in boy groups is to become much more about athleticism and much more about power 
and that's clearly not what Shiny are aiming for here. But Shiny have done mm -hmm. other versions of this sort of technical choreography um, that maybe look more advanced now. But I still think in terms of some of the motifs they have with the the, the pointed fingers and the, the the sort of swipes that they're just some of the most like recognizable bits of K-pop uh, choreography. Oh yeah. Um, oh, that 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 kind of you know when they start the course and there's that kind of uh, side-on hand motion like that is instantly recognizable. Yep. As are a lot of their dances, honestly. Very much so. Also, I've been waiting for literally an hour. Can we please talk about their costumes? I, I do and by their just... costumes, I mean Jonghyun's apron. <laughs> so I'm going to say no, because I want to make the final reference to the very last bit of choreography. You should do that first. Which is just like, we've had a motif. We've had a motif about the pointed fingers and the motion and it's in the precision and the, the slowness is unnerving and weird and very cool and then the very last thing we get is the wrist twist to point one finger down and it's uh, okay i said that maybe lucifer doesn't have the same kind of narrative set pieces that everybody does mm -hmm. um this is simply one of the most like surprising and subtle bits of like narrative in choreography that i've ever seen in k-pop and it just stuck with me. I, I was like, holy shit, when I first saw it. And I don't think that holy shit moment has ever quite gone away. That little twist is very good. Uh, it's, I also do love how in the dance music video, which will also be in the show notes, because this, this particular dance practice video is also legendary. Oh, yeah. I think this is single-handedly the video that kicked off the, the phenomenon of the dance practice video. Right. So, so, the, so the idea, to briefly explain, at some point, like... Uh, companies basically cottoned on to the fact that fans really want to see the performances and the choreography. For a bunch of reasons, both uh, to like right. learn it themselves, but also to like admire the technical skill outside of the mm. MV presentation. And we'd had things like performance versions of the music video, right? Which is basically like the same aesthetic getup as the music video, the same style of camera work, the same kind of direction, but uh, instead of cutting away for like close-ups or sort of like concepts, uh, set pieces, it, it's just the performance. But the, the dance practice video is really unique in that it, it sort of, it sets up this sense of uh, candidness Yes. Because like the very first music practice videos and their Lucifer is one of them. Very obviously literally something they recorded while they were practicing so they could go and watch themselves and kind of improve on it. And in this one like you can see there are a lot of flubs. There are, uh, there very... are a lot of flubs. Also the the track version like very slightly technically different. None of the vocoder parts are in. Right. I think the most notable difference is that Junkin's belt where in the final version, there's a bar added so that you can like hear him belt out. It's just not there. Like there are some like straight up like compositional differences between this version of the track and the one right. that made it to release. Well, I was just going to say at the very, very last moment, Timon messes up the twist. He yes. he comes in too early. He like, he stops himself because he realizes it, but he actually, he, he, he messes it up. Um, everyone's wearing street clothes. Uh, again, this is infamous for the mesmerizing stripy <laughs> shirt because yeah, Taemin is a walking warre effect. Yeah, it turns out <laughs> it turns out it turns out three sixty p videos and like ye olde YouTube compression cannot handle striped shirts at all. So th there is the quite wonderful moment where the move, like one of Taemin's amazing um, solo dance practice videos, filmed nearly a decade later, has also got him even in 1080p glory, 
being a walking warrior effect also in a, in a black and white striped shirt and yeah it's- we we were all rejoicing that he had we had we're all joking saying that he dug his old uh, lucifer shirt out of the closet just for this it was hilarious um, um but it yeah really it's kind of mesmeric and very very cool yeah it's uh, well. I was gonna say it's also great because uh, Key has his hair in a little top knot, <laughs> uh, which does make the comparative hairstyling that much more apparent. I mean, Onyo and, jo- uh, and Minho are in hats, so we'll give them a pass. But they also had, relatively speaking, the most mundane hairstyles. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, John of, of Junkin's everybody. got a weird spiky mullety mess, which was extremely popular yeah. at that point. Like that was very much the 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 kind of K-pop aesthetic, and if you looked at the little bonus photo of uh, 2004 era TVXQ that I slipped into the last episode show notes, <laughs> be grateful we've toned it down from the full like fan tail Final Fantasy fish hair effect, <laughs> like fish tail, like goldfish, you know, like the big. Fa- anyway, that's what I it puts me in mind of. Yeah. Um. Uh- yeah. Um, I do just want to like add as a side note that the sort of like when we talk about personality and like particularly at the very start that like Onyu, Junkin and Shiny's vocal vocals in general are like some of the most performative and like musically expressive that I think particularly Temin but broadly all the dancers are like at that level in terms of their reinterpretation of the dance and I, I particularly like there's the moment where they have the um I don't know what you'd call it, but the 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 lineup with the hands, uh, like oh yeah, the the stacked yeah, uh, that you you know it better than I do because you've actually like, tried to figure this stuff out. Um, just that Temin in the dance practice is incredibly neutral and incredibly accurate and limited the amount of movement he does. Mm-hmm. Then as soon as you see it, particularly even in the music video, and this is like. This is meant to be the music video that shows off the choreography in its best form. And it's including all sorts of like very slight sideways movements and twists that like disrupt all the perfect lines of the choreography. And like, this is just Temin like having a very natural instinctive ability to like personalize all the dance choreography she's given. And like, it's just a window into like, we always knew he was a special dancer. We always thought it was because he was incredibly technically proficient. It just turns out that the thing that separates Temin from every, everything else is the musicality with which he dances which I think is just wonderful. Um, so yeah, I think it's about now where we get to rip the shit out of their outfits. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting so long. Well, let's go for it. Oh, all right. I don't know if this is just going to be our thing where we don't know how to end these things. So we just rag on outfits. No, but... I think it's very important to like do all the like important sociological study. And then just like at some point we're like, but they look very silly, don't they? And also this apron is dumb. <laughs> uh, I do feel for Key because I always feel like Key always gets slightly more out there hair. Oh yeah, very true. Well, Taman gets the yeah. long ones, the, the like androgynous ones, but Key gets the Yeah, for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and in this case, Key is his his hair looks extremely standard from you know his left. And then you look at the right, and you realize not only is it, it's, I call it a proto undercut. It's like undercuts are cool. Haven't figured out how to do them well yet though. <laughs> and it's yeah. it's 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 so short, right? It's it's basically buzzed. The problem is it's also bleached. I, the thing there's a patch of pink in there somewhere. 
Right. And I, I think that's actually, I think that might just be a bleaching fuck off. Because <laughs> like it's his roots. Like it's his roots near the back. It's not, there's, there doesn't seem to be like any kind of pattern to it. Like it doesn't extend down the back. It's just kind of a little blotch. It didn't interact with that old colour or something. And no. 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 Oh, poor boy. And finally, please never put what is... How do I begin to describe the apron? I don't even know. Let me know. see the ways. It's, 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 it's not leather. I mean, obviously. It's kind of like a, a, a faux, some kind of like plasticky... Material, which, yeah, again, makes perfect sense given the aesthetic of the video. However, however, it's kind of a, um, a podcast a famously non-visual format. Uh, <laughs> imagine, if you will, sort of a, a sleeveless vest jacket thing. Now, imagine that it extends all the way down to about mid-thigh. And that this vest at mid-thigh is sewn back into your trousers. Okay. <sighs> Okay, with me so far. Yeah. Now, remove the back. I don't mean... I did not say cut a hole in the back. I mean, get rid of it. There is no back. Okay? There is no back. There are two little, almost like, reverse backpack arm loops. Arm straps. And that constitutes the back of the apron. And that's what he's wearing. Think, mm, yeah. Yeah, that's... It's mm, just it. Mm. Oh, and there's a zipper, there's a zipper down the middle. I forgot. So you can you can escape the apron. Yeah, there's a <laughs> the contraption, <laughs> the the cage. Yeah, it's so much. It's so much. Oh god, it's a lot. Like honorable mentions to Onyu's like half furry sleeveless jacket. Yeah. Um. Which is. I mean, like shiny, and it, it ha at least has has an interesting texture going for it. Given everybody else is in various combinations of like PVC jacket, uh, PVC faux leather zippers, and right latex, maybe, but like very smooth, very smooth textures. Yeah. Um, and uh, sorry, don't, don't make me whack up the Yoda pick. Oh God, and um, and he's got this like furry thing attaches back so it at least provides some textual contrast and that's 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 what i'll say about that yeah jacket but ooh, 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 choices so choices much. decisions oh uh, um i, I do just want to like i have to say the swooshes the the swirly visual matrix effects like add a add a kind of i don't even want to say like it's not that it's specifically dated. It's that it's like, what, what do I want to say about them other than just like note that they exist and like, oh, uh, I'm trying to think like the, the swooshes, the sci-fi swooshes that it feels like, no, I, I'm running out of words because I'm just like overwhelmed by the, the sheer audacity of like. To, to be fair, you've also done a lot of heavy lifting <laughs> description wise oh like, like i don't think i've got anything to say in terms of just like other than oh my god what are those um yeah um they're delightful I, have... I, mean, <laughs> I mean they're terrible they're they're objectively a mistake to include if i do delightful. have a comment about the outfits themselves to make it's the very tetsuya nomura character design school of buckles and zips everywhere which i like 
kind of appreciate given how like mm-hmm. JRPG heritage, all the all the like makeup and hair design is still. And the footwear. Um yeah, lots of one like one knee a uh, knee pad um zips or like padding yeah. on one leg or one thigh big yeah. moon boots or or like super heavily studded uh boot like tie up boots lots of wrist cuffs mm-hmm. big uh necklaces yeah which are either on very long chains or just very chunky yeah Again, honorable shouts, shout outs to the rock version, which we didn't dwell on because it's an experience. <laughs> but, uh, but it's one of those weird things where it's, it's very endearing because a lot, a lot of it is just bad. Yeah. Not the performance. <laughs> uh, some of the performance places, the performances are a bit oh, okay, bad. Some, but, the, but the stage, but like, like Key's microphone works approximately half of the time. <laughs> Like yes. you can see, he is opening his mouth and singing. That microphone is not transmitting anything. All of the microphones pick up the whoosh of the like flame of the like flame effects they're using. Yep. <laughs> um, the mix is horrendous. It really is. Like the the balancing between the live track and and the backing track, even if their microphones did not keep crapping out halfway through. Like, it's not good. No. It doesn't, it's not balanced. No. And then we get the sort of like VCR intro, which is them trapped on like being tied up to slabs in mesh tops and Jonkin being stuck in a oh, cage. God. I'm guessing the reason Jonkin mm-hmm. was still stuck in a cage for the actual performances because he was injured or ill or something like that and couldn't do the dance at the same time. But it's kind of yeah. hilarious that you just like, there's a boy in a cage in the middle of the stage and the uh, other members get brought on stage by being tied up to a big metal slab in chains. And then they dramatically rip they dramatically off their shackles. Rip them. Oh my God. Oh, it's so good. Uh, and then um, the outfit is like similar to the MV, but much more black and much more emo, much more um, like BDSM as opposed to like plastic. And <laughs> yeah. 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 And yet in some weird sense, it still looks like it's easier to move in those. Yes, parts. absolutely. Because of the lack of, like, just, like, chunky metal ornaments. But, yeah, um, flailing rock guitar solo to intro it, and then power chords chugging through the chorus. My absolute favorite moment in the entire thing is when, uh, spoilers, Jonghyun's freed from his cage. <laughs> and the camera, okay, firstly, the camera does a dramatic zoom on his face, so far so normal, but it also just starts shaking. <laughs> And I'm about 99% convinced that that shake is because it was attached somehow to that like extended portion of the stage. And when the cage goes up, it, it made the stage vibrate. Like, I don't think that camera shake is at all on purpose. Yeah. I think it was just an inescapable consequence of the cage going up. So, oh. Production decisions are a lot. But yeah, we've already said that the... Um, uh, <laughs> the, the 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 I think my favorite moments are split between the ubiquitous flame effects that get picked up on the vocal mics, or alternatively the um the moment where Key's hyping up the track as they're walking over to the middle stage as the kick cage is rising, and um right. he just straight up like it's not a belt, it's not a shout, it's a scream with the most incredible voice crack I think I've heard from a K-pop idol in a very long time. <laughs> It's, it's, yeah. Um, 
that sometimes you get really into your own thing and that's when um yeah and that's when you um scream so loud your voice craps out and you're in the middle of a life stage god it's so good it's so good like i do have to respect them for going that hard in a in an environment where like clearly a lot is going wrong but it's live and it's being filmed and by god they're gonna go for it yeah uh we're not gonna spoil the guest performances but you get some incredibly random and incredibly cool random arrivals and additions to the stage yeah i i want you all to know that like when we were setting up i one of the things i do is i you know i go on a youtube trawl and i try to find all the different live versions and stage versions and remixes and whatnot and when i found this i sent it to you right because i thought it would be just a funny rock performance Uh and it is that and i had no idea about the cameo i had no idea about any of it and it is one of my favorite discoveries (laughs) in recent memory yeah it's pretty exceptional i'm gonna clip that cage shake i'm gonna put it somewhere Uh It's just gone to it. <laughs> it's it's oh, it mess. makes me laugh every single time. <laughs> oh, and on that, I th- on that, I think. I think we better wrap up. We've said all we can say. So yeah, we've been Stan Shiny, aka Stan Ontology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of fun talking about this ludicrous, weird track um it's like neither of us would i think call it a favorite shiny track like i don't know if you've got an an easy answer to what that is i don't but uh i will say in let's say my top 10 lucifer's not on it yeah no agreed very 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 hard same it's just that it sort of like typifies this like weird transformation (laughs) like in the history i think like so Part of what we wanted to do initially and part of why we're doing these songs in this order isn't necessarily because we love them and it's not even necessarily because we think they're the best of what they do in that time. Controversial, but there you go. Mm, I I I mean, I still think they're all good. The thing is, we chose them because we think that they exemplify something important about K-pop that, you know, you, you pick up by being a fan. Like, if you hunt for the stuff and you look for the stuff and you go through fandom and you look at all those like what what's the most influential song of insert condition here right like what's Mm -hmm. the most influential boy group song what's the most influential like 2010 song what's the most influential shiny song right these are the kinds of things that keep popping up over and over again yeah it's what what helps us tell the story and explain the explain the narrative and explain the development explain the work i think right i go all the way back to the thing that i wanted to highlight was like what work did people do? Like, what were they listening to? How did that change what they made? All those sorts of things. Right. And there's something about Lucifer that, like, even if it's not the kind of thing I would put on my own playlist, like, you you sort of have to acknowledge how pivotal it was. Not just for the band, but, like, how it captures a certain aspect and mood and direction and intention, I think, of K-pop at that time in that yeah. place. Very, very much so. Oh, I'm really excited for next next time as well. <laughs> oh, we're going to have so much Where the fun. hot mess gets messier. Oh, oh. Uh, this we is... get, next week is for peak hot mess, and I'm really excited for it. Next week, peak hot mess is the one where I listened to it first, and I actually screamed. Like, I, I yelled from the audacity of it. I, I'm so glad I was on the voice chat when we, when we listened to that <sighs> together. 
we're going to have a lot, a lot of fun talking that about it. That was good. That was very good. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been episode three of Stan Ontology. Um, catch us at, or on all podcast things. My Twitter is at regression with three S's. My Twitter is at Claudia W-Y-L-O. Perfect. Uh, it's in the show notes. I'm not going to spell it. Um, Come scream at us about Shiny and or other K-pop groups you stan. We will scream back at you. Um, it's yeah. been a pleasure. Until next we'll time. Catch you, we'll catch you next time. Bye.